All right, this is Project Herpetoculture Podcast, episode 49. I'm your host, Roy Arthur Blodgett, and usually I'm joined by Philip Leitz of Arizona Only, but tonight he wasn't able to make it, so I'm flying solo. But we do have an excellent guest that I'm excited to introduce, and I think it's going to be a great show. So before we get into it, I'm going to go through our standard housekeeping, and I want to give a shout out to Dylan and the Animals at Home Network for hosting our show. I also want to mention Charlie who edits our audio and um, really helps us out a lot in that regard. So really appreciate Charlie for that. Um, and then also want to mention our sponsors. We've got um, Custom Reptile Habitats, of course. They've been with us since the beginning and they make some outstanding uh, reptile enclosures. And um, we have an affiliate link for them posted in our description. So if you're looking for a nice PVC reptile enclosure, um, you should make the purchase through that link. We'll receive a small commission at no additional cost to you. Uh, we also have Redline Shipping for all of your reptile shipping needs. Check them out for your supplies and your labels. Um, they've been doing great for me this season, so highly recommend them. And then lastly, we have Cold-Blooded Caffeine, and they're purveyors of premium coffees from across the globe. And they donate a small percentage of each bag of coffee sold to um, conservation in those coffee-growing regions where there's some really amazing herpetofauna. So check them out and use the code Project Herp for 10% off. And if you're interested in supporting the show uh, directly, you can um, check us out on Patreon. We're always welcoming to, you know, new patrons there. And um, yeah, with all that out of the way, I'm excited to introduce our guest. That's Chris Dieter of Crocodile Encounter. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, likewise. So what initially sparked your interest in, in herpetofauna? Um, honestly, it just, it's probably just like so many other people to get into reptiles. It's kind of something you do when you're, when you're a kid. I know I was just a big, huge Godzilla fan and dinosaurs and everything else, you know, like that. And kind of it's just on some level, it feels like my entire life has been just growing towards the biggest possible reptiles. You know, I started off with box turtles and, and I actually still keep those, but, um, so, I mean, I still like a lot of the smaller stuff, but it just seemed like, you know, we went from, you know, where we started with smaller herbs, because that's what you can afford and, and manage when you're younger to, you know, monitor lizards and then eventually, you know, into crocodilians. And and I kind of, that's kind of like been the ultimate rod up, you know, so, and then we kind of stayed there and just kind of developed it from there. So. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I think that most of us fall fall well short of getting to crocodilians in the herpetoculture world. So you're a, you're, you're the you're same in a distinguished one category. Maybe a little insane. I don't know. You know, there's a, there's a lot of different levels to this kind of thing. So. Yeah, totally. Well, how did it start? I mean, how did you get? How did you begin with crocodilians? I don't even know how. Well, you go. know, the truth of the matter is, I, I I was I became an educator, so I was in my my classroom here in Texas, and I could have a American alligator in my classroom, which was, was pretty cool as a classroom animal. Um, and then I went to Cayman, and uh, but I decided, you know what, we have these two, we need to get a crocodile, uh, not cro- actual crocodile, and so that's when I got the first croc, the first crocodile in our group, and uh, you know, this is thirty some years ago, and. Uh, and it just kind of went from there. We started having a lot of success with them. And somewhere along the line, and I was writing for uh, Reptile and Amphibian Hobbyists. I had a monthly column with them. And so we would do, you know, monthly columns. We call, it was actually called Hefty Herp. So we, we were just, I mean, I've always done big 
big reptiles, whether it's water monitors and, uh, you know, the giant tortoises, whatever, crocodile monitors. But um, so we just kept kind of growing with it. And as, as my life, as I got more settled as an adult, I ended up acquiring more land, more property that, that made it feasible to, you know, keep crocodilians. Because if, if you really don't have land, <laughs> you know, away from a lot of people, you're not going to have success with, you know, the the biggest reptiles in the world. I mean, you're just not going to. So you're going to run into legal problems or space problems or or some kind of thing like that. You know, there's a lot of logistics to keeping, you know, large crocodilians that, that I think most people probably don't think about when they're, you know, when they're getting the the little animal. And actually, when we did that, we got on to that in that line of thinking, um, there was very little in the way of support or uh, people keeping crocodilians back when, when we got into this 30 years ago. And it actually led me to write a, a book called The Ultimate Guide to Crocodilians in Captivity, which, you know, was, at the time, it was really the only handbook for, uh, we actually toured all these croc facilities, used all the information that they were using, kind of created a kind of a guide that would keep you, you know, it was a basic formulated guide that would be, allow you to go ahead and have success with the animals and uh now we've upgraded it, and then there's a new release coming on. I've been saying this for like five years, but I keep adding stuff to the book. The original book was like I think 120, 125 pages. This one's almost like 400. It's just huge, you know. Wow. So, yeah, wow. I just keep adding to it because you know you're looking at three plus decades of keeping them. So you just, you know, a lot of stuff that was in the first book I don't even do or agree with necessarily, you know, anymore. You know, it's still mm-hmm. a reasonably sound way to keep them, but we've just, we've kind of progressed beyond a lot of it. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so so, you know, obviously now you're you're operating crocodile encounter. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and kind of how that evolved? Was it was it kind of yeah. you know it, it like never really meant to be? I mean, it was yeah, kind of. Yeah, I was a, wondering. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was just one of those deals, you know. I was I was t- I was a teacher, and. Um, uh, while I was teaching, you know, obviously you make a set amount of money as a teacher and I'm keeping these, these very large reptiles, which, you know, when you're keeping, say, some of your ball pythons or even honestly at the time I was breeding water monitors and Argus monitors and those. And when you're keeping those, there's some self-sustainability to them. You can sell the babies, you know, at least you, most right. of the time, honestly, you, you have a break even point, you know, at least we did with the Argus monitors and the water. And um Yeah. And now, honestly, the price is just crazy on these water marts, not to divulge, but I mean, I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I look at that morph market. These are just, these animals are over thousands of dollars. And, and we were, I believe, the first people to actually bred water monitors at the time. We can't find any other record oh, of them. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if you go back and look at the reptile and amphibian hobbyists, we were, we popped them out. It was probably 1992, give or take, something like wow. that. Yeah. It was, I'm, I'm guessing that was probably. And, uh, and we published it, you know, we did all the data on it and everything. I got it, but we ended up, it was really hard to sell the babies. And uh, this just tells you mm-hmm. how the market has changed because now, and we were, we had them at a price tag like 250 bucks, you know, yeah. Captain Bread Water Monitor. And but the imports were coming in so cheap. And so at the time, and at the time, the Captain Bread thought hadn't really caught on that this is a better animal. And, mm. you know, and we ran into the same thing. And my friend Rob Files was breeding black throats and white throats. And it was, it was kind of the, kind of the same kind of deal. But, um, long story short of it, uh, I started doing some educational programs with the, the crocodilians and, uh, cause we were well plugged into that as a teacher. And, 
And so just from that, we were, it was just meant to uh, help sustain the group of Frogadagans that we were keeping, which wasn't a, a huge group or anything like that, but it just was costly. And so that helped to, uh, to balance all the costs. And it just so happened we ended up between the book and the, the magazine and uh, the husbandry we were doing, we got very good at reproducing them and keeping them. And so we ended up getting patched into uh, AZA zoos. And from one thing led to the next. And before you know it, they're just asking us to take um, various different species. And it just kind of, it just kind of exploded. So, yeah. Yeah. And it became a park. And then here we are, you know, so we started as an educational park uh, where we had just like groups come out. Then we went through bigger field trip groups. And now we become like a tourist attraction. So it's just an open to the public spot now. So never was intended. It was just kind of a life of its own, you know, so just kind of riding the wave. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's kind of what you got to do, I would imagine, especially yeah. with working such with such such creatures. Yeah. Um, what's the kind of range of species that you're working with in terms of crocodilians there? Oh, we have most of them. Um, we're actually lowering wow. our num- yeah, we're actually lowering our numbers now because we, uh, for me, uh, with our mission as a general rule, I prefer to keep groups of fewer species rather than have like to one or two of many species. Like it's not our goal mm-hmm. to have, uh, we're the largest group of crocodiles in America. So we have more crocodiles than everybody. I mean, you could probably put the crocodiles wow. all piled up in America and put them in a pile. We might still have more than everybody. Um, we have a wow. lot of crocodiles and they're, and we keep groups of them. So instead of like having a Chinese alligator, we have 25, you know, instead wow. of having a now crocodile, we have 160. You know, so wow. I mean, we have, a, yeah, we have a lot. And, you know, instead of having a saltwater crocodile, we have like, you know, three or four or whatever like that. But we have a few species where we have lower numbers and they're not considered like reproductive programs for us. So like the Philippines crocodiles, we have females of those. We do not have a male. So we're, we're going to move those to other mm-hmm. facilities. Um you know, there's a few, we have a mugger crocodile, but there's only like six in the United States. And uh, we were doing an import of those from Europe, but that group died in, uh, in Czechoslovakia. So we weren't able to bring those in. So we still have our single mm-hmm. animals. So we're going to move her away. Um, you know, stuff like that. I mean, we have, a, we have quite a few of those like that. We have a big group of Orinoco crocodiles. We have a large wow. group of, of Themistema, false gharials. We have three breeding pairs. So wow. yeah, they're not quite online yet. It'll be about two more years, maybe three, but uh, it's, you know, we have, we have a lot of stuff. So, but we're going to make the groups, the the number of species smaller so that we can, you know, just focus on the groups per se. Totally. That that makes perfect sense. I mean, especially it seems like a lot of crocodilians, you know, are critically endangered now. So I imagine like there's, you know, demand for for those animals within AZA programs and are are you or is there any kind of involvement with like SSPs or anything like that? We're we're in like six SSPs. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Like we're in the now SSP. We're in the Tamistama SSP. We're in the Chinese alligator SSP. We're in the Orinoco SSP. Um, there's a couple other ones on there that I'm not really thinking about right now. Probably the Philippines. We're going to move on yeah. now. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's primarily, you know, kind of where we are involved with them for the most part. Um, you know, and then that's it's a, they're all interesting projects, and um, I don't even think they're called SSPs anymore. I think AZA changed the designation on them this year. They're called something else. Yeah, I forget yeah. exactly what it is. But uh, 
But it's, it's the same program. But the, the main problem with crocodilian programs, and it, it's like this for a lot of different things, but crocodilians are like the perfect storm of this. I always tell people um, crocodiles are very big animals. So you're looking at a mega animal. I mean, if you go to the zoo, I mean, if a crocodile is as big as, you know, some of the larger megafauna that you're going to have, but they have tremendous numbers of babies. So, you know, if, you, if you're mm-hmm. fortunate enough to have one of the giant animals, like say it's a mistima, which is, you know, a potential 14 to 16 foot crocodile or more. And, uh, if, and it's critically endangered animal, but if you get a baby, uh, you get them the hatch, even a moderate hatch of 10 to 15 animals, you know, in a few years is, is a significant, um, space concern. And so like here uh, in Texas, yeah. we can keep them outside the majority of the year, but we have to lifeboat them through the winter. Um, Otherwise, you know, if we have one of our bad cold snaps come through, you can you can lose an enormous amount of animals, and um, mm-hmm. so we bring them we bring them indoors, you know, and and we'll do it that way. But you know, and that, that's the real the real significant question is when you're dealing with crocodiles, is what are you going to do with the babies? And so there's some years you, right. know, you don't even want to have them, you know. I mean, that's just how that goes. So I have an incubator for like, crocodile eggs right now that I'm deciding some of them are probably going to end up putting in the freezer just because we don't want to deal with the numbers, you know. So. Yeah, it's understandable. I mean, I know, I know even, you know, private hobbyists with other herbidofauna that have to do that just because there isn't sufficient demand, you know, and yeah. especially when you're working with stuff like, like, um, uh, you know, giant pythons that produce huge clutches of eggs and stuff like that. And there's just not sufficient demand. It doesn't make sense to hatch everything. Right. Yeah. It's hard to do. It's I mean, even I mean, more. Yeah. It's, it's really difficult to do. I mean, uh, you know, I'm looking at them right now. I put them off this long. We're actually getting close to the, 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 every day. You get closer to a hatch date, you know, and it's just, you know, yeah. but we have a program called Crocs in the Classroom where we send uh, hatched and crocodiles into school classrooms for a year. And, you know, it's a great fundraiser. Kids get exposed to the crocodiles. They get a little bit of understanding of the conservation. And then we take the money and we donate to Croc Fest and things like that, you know, that you know, they put yeah. the money back into wild programs. So it's a really good program. I'm always riding the line between how many we need to hash for that. And, and we don't want to get overwhelmed with that. You know, so. Yeah. That makes right. perfect sense. Yeah. So. Well, I was looking a little bit through your book and um, I, I was appreciating there's a section you had in it about just like kind of the significance of crocodilians and human culture, you know, across time. I'm curious if you could speak to that a little bit, just there's such powerful dynamic creatures and yeah it's like if you look at any place where they actually exist i mean they're you can look at it right here in the united states look at uh the american alligator and how it is just you know in the southern united states i mean it's just if you know i would use the word revered i mean but wherever they're at i mean you name it's an animal you name sports teams after you know i mean it's just yeah yeah they just wherever they're at they they're oftentimes feared unfortunately um, oftentimes people are really scared of them. I know here in Texas, you know, we have thousands of them around and people keep moving into their areas and they're hardly a day goes by. We don't get some call for an alligator. that's someplace where it shouldn't be, you know, and, um, right. and we do not, we're not nuisance trappers. So we help in emergencies only, but, um, you see a lot of that. And like in, in, in Africa where they're from or in Australia, where they're from, every single culture is got some form of, uh, crocodilian, Type either it's oftentimes it's the deity. I mean, in ancient times, you know, they mm-hmm. were they were that revered, you know, because the 
of just what they were in the rivers. I mean, wherever they were at, I mean, they were respected animals, you know, just because they're just the volume of them. And, and that's why, like, when you get to that level of, like, in herpetoculture, they are by far the most intelligent reptiles out there. They're the only reptile yeah. with a cerebral cortex. And we always tell people that, you know, you have a parrot, and everybody thinks a parrot is really smart. Well, the crocodilian brain, I mean, they're sometimes people look at a crocodilian and they think it's like a big lizard, but it's not. It's actually a bird without feathers. And uh, and that's right. how you actually really think about them. So they, they do so much of that. So once you get to the level where you're at with a crocodilian, it's really hard to kind of reverse your engines and go backwards to and I and we keep a lot of different reptiles and we have like I mean there's 25 species of turtles out here. I mean we get we got monitor lizards. We actually yeah we have Komodo dragons. Um you know we got a lot of different stuff. Komodos are very intelligent. That that's a they are different oh, yeah. they're different than the other monitors. I mean they I mean we keep a lot of monitors and they're they're a different level but they're still not a crocodile. <laughs> it's just they're it's just a different level altogether. I mean, the crocodilians learn their names, their routines, habitats. I mean, habits. It's just, it's just a whole different level, you know. So really interesting. In yeah, yeah. I'm always amazed by that. It's something that seems like a consistent theme, and with everyone I've spoken to who's, you know, worked with crocodilians, whether in captivity or observed them out, you know, in nature, is just how how intelligent they are, how calculated they are. You know, yeah. I remember these these accounts of like muggers collecting twigs on their on their heads you know setting up ambush for waiting birds and just incredible stuff yeah and some people like you know they, the people like to throw one and i know everybody likes to anthropomorphize the whole thing but you know you go yeah. and if, if they do everybody likes to think they're, they're snakes like super smart and like you know I look how smart he is he found his mouse or whatever <laughs> you know? yeah, and, yeah. I, and i'm not and i'm not downplaying that at any anything whatsoever but um Crocodiles are actually there's something going on in there, you know. I mean, it's a little different level. Like they're they're thinking their way through some stuff. It's actually a little bit eerie sometimes. They're not going to build any rocket ships anytime soon. I mean, your dog is yeah. Smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, but they they are there's there's some thinking that goes on with them, you know. So they're definitely. Can you, can you give like any? Can you give like an example of that that you've had you know, like, it's just, something that stands out? Man, that's a tough thing. It's just it's just how quickly they learn things. I mean, you yeah. can do a you can do a repetition. And this is a, this is a hunting behavior, basically. So what you're doing is their intelligence is is based on if if you're like as an example, like my friends in Africa, the people who go over there, they'll wash their clothes and in the in the rivers over there. And mm-hmm. if there's a crocodile in the area, they will learn the time that people go down there very quickly. You know, okay. and they're going right now. And well, so in captivity. This same kind of thing happens except twice as fast. Because, like, if you do something, if, if whether it's a good habit or a bad habit, the crocodilian is going to pick up on that. And so, you know, your training of the crocodilian can either make your keeping a lot easier or it can make it a lot more difficult. We, we actually had a situation with this today. I'll give you an example. Um, we have a big group of now crocodiles. Some of our now crocodiles are moving to the Bronx Zoo this week. And um, they're going to have a new display. So we're shipping them there. I think five of them are going up there with them. And so mm-hmm. we pulled four females for them because they're, they're going to be shipped on Sunday. And we were having a hard time getting this male. Well, in the past, we have always um, conditioned our animals to basically position themselves on land. They would come out of the water. We'd be able to station them on land. We'd stop. We could actually literally catch them in like a minute. It's like not even hard. But today we have a group of them that have not been conditioned like that. So we had to pull from the water. And it just makes it a much more difficult experience, you know, all the way around. So. 
and because we have trained them to eat off of this dock. So before we used right. to have them come to a land station, but now we're training them to eat off of a dock because they jump. And people love to see the jump. I mean, boom, they love to see the crocodile explode yeah, out of course. water. And uh, because of that, that, we have lost a little bit of control. And so I was telling yeah. the staff after we did get the crocodile, but I was telling the staff after, after we were done that uh, we probably need to start bringing them on land every once in a while again, just to kind of, you know, used to be, I, mean, I had them before the, the group in, in a past group, I had them where I would bring them up and I could line these crocodiles up just like you would park your car and they would all just stop right on the line. It was the coolest thing in the whole world, man. I had like these seven to 10, you know, eight to 12 foot now crocodiles just lined up right there. You know, you feel like you're like uh, the beast master or something. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> and there's just nothing like it because, you know, I can't line up crested geckos and be like at that same kind of like adrenaline <laughs> level feel, you know, and uh, nothing against the crested gecko, but when you got like 10 now crocodiles listening to your, your words right there in front of you and they're yeah. really swamped. I mean, I'm not joking. That, that's a great, that's an interesting feeling. It's an interesting feeling. You know? Oh yeah. And then you do, and then you click your clicker and that crocodile pulls forward. I mean, it's just, it's really awesome. You know? so, Amazing. Yeah. It's really cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's such a different aspect. It's like the training is, I imagine it's a pretty integral part of the whole the whole husbandry process for crocodilians, you know, I mean, obviously there's so many things that sets crocodilians apart from other herpetofauna, but I would think it just in terms, in terms of the husbandry, that's, you know, there are very few keepers that are focused on like training their snakes or their lizards, but in, in some ways it's like, it's actually kind of integral to the process of working with crocodilians. I'd imagine to be training them. It makes your life a lot easier and it's a lot safer. And you, you can tell the difference yeah, between yeah. Uh, a crocodile, and right now, honestly, I, I don't feel it. Um, I don't feel that our like our, a lot of our crocodile, well, at least the now crocodile group. Uh, I don't feel they're as trained as like we've had different groups before, and I don't feel the ones we have right now are as well conditioned as the ones we've had in the past. Primarily, they're they're pretty well conditioned. They're just trained in a different way, and just kind of like I was telling you, they're mm-hmm. coming to target zones rather than you know going up on land. And I, I think, and part of it's because our group is so big now. Um, and each animal is getting a proportionally smaller amount of actual one-on-one time, you know, with this. And, um, but you know, it's, it's pretty much because it's when you're training them and you're, you're, when we, and we raise them all here from the time they're, like I said, from now the incubator to here, when you're training them and it starts when they're young and they're two or three feet. And then as they get older, but like I said, when I had a row of like seven to 10 of them lined up like that, there's always a couple that don't want to listen initially. You know, and so uh, you got to make sure, like, you, you got them stop while you're running for your life. And, you know, and eventually it just works out. I mean, over time, but they cue off each other. So if you can get a really a couple really calm ones and they do what they're, they're supposed to do, the other ones kind of cue off of that, particularly if it's the dominant animal in the group. And so that's kind of the key animal to get. And it's just, um, and then they kind of just follow each other. You know, they, they really learn from each other a lot. So if you have, like, if you have an animal that's not eating well, and you put it in with a bunch of good eating animals, it kind of takes care of your problem for you. So it's really kind of an interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It, 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 there, there's a, there's a large sociological component to crocodiles and yeah, you know, we'll probably go through it this weekend a little bit. Cause we're actually bringing in a big female from another zoo. And if the animal is kept by itself for too long, they become super antisocial. And so, you know, it, yeah. And so then you have to like retrain them. You can, and, so we try to keep all ours like trained in a group because they really develop these antisocial personalities if, if they don't have one with them. Mm-hmm. And, then it beca- and then introductions become a real problem. So, 
something that's really difficult to work around, actually. That's really interesting. Is it, is it also, I mean, I imagine this would, because there's such a broad array of species, but it, is that a difference, you know, between wild crocodilians versus in captivity? Are they more um, solitary, you know, in, in, in nature typically than in captivity or, or is it? It just depends on the, on the species. Like now crocodiles are very gregarious. They live in large groups. So yeah. Like American alligators Robin found in groups, but also they like their space. So, you know, then you got the sex ratio thing. Like the males like to have their own spot. You know, the females tend to right. gather and do better. Um, then there's some species like the Philippines. They seem to hate everything. You know? Yeah. <laughs> if it's breathing, they hate it. Well, I mean, it just, it just, <laughs> it just depends. There's, there's a lot of variability between species. Um, there's no real one size fits all. For, yeah. I know, I know some people have not had any success like keeping Philippines together, but our Philippines are reasonably tolerant of one another, you know, so I mean, we've had them together successfully. And, um, but then sometimes, you know, you can have animals that have been together for a long time. They decide they're going to take a slash at somebody else. So, I mean, it's just, yeah. The crocodilian world is pretty rough on each other. I mean, sometimes people sit there and say, oh, these crocs banging on each other. It's got, if you want a perfect crocodile, you almost have to keep it by itself because if it's, if it's yeah. with a the friend, they're going to get scratched and clawed and, and, and stuff like that, you know? So, yeah. There's a lot of wild crocodilians out there that have a missing hand or arm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've noticed. Or, or splash marks <laughs> down their back. I mean, it's pretty common. Oh, the yeah. beauty of it is they bounce back, like, from everything. It's really difficult yeah. to, to actually, like, injure a crocodile to death. I think in the 30-some years I've had them, I think maybe it's happened one time, you know. I remember one time yeah. I got hammered, but it was just, it was really, it was kind of a catastrophic injury. It held on for a long time, but it just eventually, you know, it just had too much damage. Yeah. But, it, I mean, for the most part, I mean, we see scratch, so they just bounce right back. It's not that big a deal, so. Yeah, this is an animal that's been around for millions and millions of years, and, you yeah. know, and it's just just absolutely sturdy yeah, <laughs> it's a resilient it. design yeah exactly and a lot of people don't realize how thick and heavy that animal actually is i mean they're they're stout you know people, a lot of people talk about the length of them and um you know they'll say oh it's this long or whatever like that but man those things are they're big i mean big bulky yeah you know, like the salties and the nile and, uh, you know your bigger animals like your acutest and you know, the mugger is a pretty thick animal. Um, honestly, the Tamistum is an underrated giant. They're really big, you know. Yeah, they're like, big. Ornogos, too, are pretty big. Ornogos are just titanic. Yeah, so a lot of people tend to think that they focus on the length, but these are big, thick animals. I mean, you're talking 1,000, 2,000-pound animals sometimes, you know, so they're, they're big. That's <laughs> so wild. Yeah, I imagine so too, especially it's like... It's like once they reach a certain length, you know, it's more about the, the mass that they're accumulating as they grow, right? For sure. Yeah. The first couple of years are all they they stay relatively trim and they're, you know, they're and you can have like a six or seven foot animal that's, you know, 50 pounds, maybe, you know, depending if it's a real yeah. thin one, you know. But then it won't be long after that before that 50 becomes 200 and then, you know, at 250, oh, yeah. it, it goes pretty quick once they, they seem like they 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 reach a point where I would say they probably do eighty or ninety percent of their growth, and then after that, if they really start bulking up, then so and I would yeah. I would say like in now crocodiles, in my experience, it's been roughly around tenish feet for the males, and uh, the females tend to bulk a little bit before that. They're usually I'm gonna say seven ish feet, 
you know, the saltwater crocodiles we're raising, they they really honestly haven't, they've started to bonk a little bit, but they're just now, and they're both like 11-ish. I mean, the ones we got are all 11 feet, 12 feet, you know, so they're wow. just now starting to show signs of bonking. So. Yeah, uh, the little ones. Yeah. Like the Philippines, they're smaller. They're already bonked, you know, they're like five foot long. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is there, is there, of, of all these species that you work with, do you have a favorite? Is there one that kind of stands out to you? It's the, the Nile crocodile is my favorite. You know? Although Tabistimus, again, they're growing up there, but the Nile crocodile is just, you know, you talked about uh, historical significance and cultural significance. I mean, they, the way they were viewed in Africa, you know, as a deity and just, you know, they're just so revered and, um, and the crocodile itself, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, just they're on TV all the time. So, I mean, they're just such an iconic yeah. animal and they're so big, but the beauty of the Nile crocodile is not only, it, and we have like, we have T-positive albinos here too, that are really great. That's kind of like oh, one wow. of our, our sub, we don't really publicize them a whole lot yet, but they'll, they'll be out the next couple of seasons. But, um, so we have a group wow. of them and, uh, they're a big, they're a big breeding project for us. Uh, probably uh, to me the prettiest animal in all of herpetology. They're just an unbelievably stunning animal. Wow. They're bright yellow, white. It just it's just crazy. And um, wow, yeah, and they're big. So I mean, you're getting this big, giant yellow, white animal, you know. And so, and then you get the size of them. But the, the beauty of the Nile crocodile is they actually become really tractable. So for for a man eater, mm. I mean, I've been able to have some of our big calmer female. I can weed whack around them. They'll just lay there, you know, you weed whack right around yeah. them. And they just they really calm down well, and they they train very quickly, very very quickly. And uh, so they're they're kind of and they're tough. I mean, they're really really tough. They do well here for the most part, even through Texas winters, except the extreme winds where we we protect them as well. Um, yeah. And it's just they're they're a great species, you know. They're you know they're really really great species. I just I find little little to dislike about them, so they're kind of our flagship out here, you know. So yeah, very cool. That's not the answer I would have expected, but it totally makes sense. I think that um, <laughs> which one do you on think? A, in an earlier, uh, I don't know. I just feel like you know Niles. They they seem like more uh, maybe more common or something. I was thinking some oh, more. Well, you're you know, probably not. Yeah, you're probably not wrong about that. You know, the funny thing about now crocodiles is, is that um, I'm 160 of them, <laughs> but and also an incubator full of eggs over here, so I might have 190 of them. You know, in about uh, four weeks. Oh my but, god! But but here's but here's yeah, here's the thing. There used to be a time like when the Nile crocodile, before the legislation changed on them, you you were probably correct. I mean, it was probably a little bit more common mm-hmm. of an animal because they were still bringing them in. I, I can't even, and honestly, yeah. that's how I, I think that's how I got my first ones because I was like 22 or something. I said, hey, here's this crocodile. I got this uh, yeah. alligator. Yeah, let's go get this crocodile. And uh, I knew this thing was going to become a titan. I, I didn't actually totally understand it. My, the next 30 years of my life will be dedicated, you know, to some degree to this animal, but uh, they've been, but it's been a good alliance. I mean, it really has. I mean, they've yeah, been, of course, but, um, but now the, um, the permits have changed on them. There's, they're, they're, an, they're an animal you can't bring across state lines without having the, uh, you know, the USDI permit. And so every time I see one for sale, like every once in a while you see one for sale, like more for I'm like, I, we produce them here. And I think every once in a while, there's like one place in Florida that'll produce them, you know, like uh-huh. that. And so like, but they're always in a state like Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, somebody's breaking the law, you know? I mean, it's just, and yeah. it's funny because we get the game where it's called us here. 
And I was like, hey, did you guys release any crocodiles? I said, no, we didn't release any crocodiles. We never sent them out in the pet zoo, like ever, never. No. And now we did we just go to zoo to zoo because it's just so they they, they said did you release it. I said, no, we didn't release any. And so they well, who where did this one come from? I said, well, I could probably tell you where it came from. I said, but you know, and um, so they're really not like they used to be. I mean, there was a time when they yeah. were important that they were. It's like spectacle came in. I mean, God, I mean, when I was young, spectacle came right. in 50 bucks. They were in every pet store, every fish store. I mean, they were $35, $50. Right. And now that is an animal. And that is actually literally probably probably the most common crocodilian in the world. I mean, it kind of has the nickname of the rat mm-hmm. of the crocodile world because there's so many. But you can't get them in the U.S. because it's the same way. They can't cross state yeah. line. I mean, it's really difficult to get spectacle came in in the U.S. now. So. And I think the laws yeah. will eventually change on the dwarf caiman too, because they bring so many of them in. I, I, it's probably unsustainable. I mean, it, it, on some level, yeah. there's been a few rumblings about that, but nothing serious yet. But I would think probably over the next five or six to ten years, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, that gets drastically limited as well. So, yeah, and that, and probably... that animal is going to be really valuable because that's actually one of the animals that's small enough for. You know, they get pretty big, too. I mean, I don't think people realize how yeah. big a caiman actually gets, too. But, I mean, they're, they're going to get bulky. I had one that was just a huge animal. I mean, it was probably, I say huge, about four and a half feet. But, I mean, the head on it was just enormous. And it was just, it was so wow. big around. Yeah, just really, really big. It was like 60 years old. But, you know, it was a big animal. Wow. Yeah. Well, was it a palpabrosis or trigonotus? Yeah, it was palpabrosis, yeah. Trigonotus, get, yeah. They get, obviously, it's a pretty big trigonotus, you know. So. Yeah. This is the palp, and everybody tends to think they're smaller. And they are smaller compared to a regular big crocodile. Right. <laughs> but not, it's always a relative term with crocodiles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, But they're, they're a very cool animal. They're, they're probably going to end up being astronomical if they shut them off. There's a lot of, a lot of desirability to them. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what's your, what, are, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, just like, obviously, this these are animals that are that are not for every every person out there, you know. And and yeah. um, I'm just curious, but what do you what do you think about all that? You know, I, to be, I don't want to be hypocritical about it because you know, I got my I was 22 year old. I bought my first Nile crocodile, which is just and now looking back, it just seems so stupid. I just, I mean, it seems like you know. Today, it seems why on earth would anybody have sold a guy that thing at 22 years age? You know, I bet it worked out yeah. for me. I might be the only guy. That worked out. <laughs> but and so, because it, but knowing, one of the outliers, yeah. But knowing the the end result and what it's like and what the what we have to have. I mean, we have four buildings here. I mean, big outbuildings with pools on the inside. Yeah. They're all climate controlled. That we bring these guys in. And we're in Texas to where we can keep them outside, like I said, 11 months out of the year for yeah. the most part. I can't fathom what people do with them up north. I just, I just, I can't, I can't see a quality yeah. of life for the animal that way either, you know? And um, so I think as a general rule, it's probably a good idea that most people can't have really good access to them because, and, and I would say anything yeah. about American alligators, because I, I have a friend up north and I mean, they, they get American alligators and they bring them down south, you know, to put them in the parks or, or stuff like that. I know one of my friends, Kyle Aspen, he just opened a, um, I say open, he he built a facility to have for just all the alligators that are up there in the north that just get too big for people. Because what happens yeah. with them is, and crocodile, this, this follows the same basic pattern. The crocodile, when it's a baby, has a lot of value because you have a lot of buyers for it. So, like, if I had, say, 59 right. crocodiles, I could sell 59 crocodiles. I could probably... 1500 bucks for them if we wanted to, 2000 you know. I mean, I don't think it would be too much. Yeah. So, they're sitting there, I get it. But when they get to be about three foot, 
that seems to be the witching size for them because they're dangerous for people. They're too big for the average yep. person to have without getting bit. But yet a person like me has little interest in a three foot one because it's not going to be a breeder, you know, or that kind of stuff. So, you know, for myself, I, we're only really paying attention to bigger animals. So they got the kind of this hole where their value just goes, you know, there's really, it's basically you almost have to give them away at that size, you know? Yeah. And again, if you get them up to breeder size again, you have another set of people that want to come for display or they just want to, you know, they want to try to breed them and the value comes back up again. You know, so it's kind of an interesting roller coaster in terms of that of that species, you know, or any crocodilian as a whole. You know, so. Yeah. So the the value is kind of inversely proportional to the size of the appendage they can Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly that right. You know? so, yeah, it's just what somebody <laughs> checks out. Yeah, yeah. So, but they, but I can tell you, almost every time somebody will call an alligator or. You know, and I, and I can, for the most part, include some zoo education departments in this. They're always the same size, three to four feet, three to four feet. So yep. You get three to four foot. I mean, what do you got? Oh, it's three to four foot. Okay. Yeah. It's just, it's just obvious it's every single time, you know? And then, yeah. Uh, and then when they change exhibits, though, like the crocodile that's coming on Sunday, that's about a 10 and a half foot animal. She's a big girl. So, mm-hmm. so the, that, and that's when you know you're going to get a different one like that. But, and then, like, we like actually like the razor arms, like when the Tomistima came to us, they were young animals. You know? So you, you get a better group if you can raise them together because of that sociological aspect of the animal itself, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, I'd like to, I'd like to speak a little bit or hear a little bit about kind of like the husbandry and kind of unpack that a little bit. I mean, what is it, what does it actually take to successfully keep crocodiles? I mean, obviously, we've already kind of spoken to a lot of those factors, but also, Earlier, you mentioned, um, you know, writing the book and how so much of that's changed for you since then. So I'm curious, kind of, what are the things that have changed, and what what are the views that you've changed that um, have evolved over the years? Well, some of them, you know, when I wrote the book, you know, it was basically for a guy who was keeping. If you wanted to keep one or two, if you like, there's different rules. If you're, if you're keeping a single animal, you don't have to worry about some of the stuff like that the we have to so like a lot of our system we become very systematic in how we keep things and some of this is influenced not from other crock keepers but just from other places i've visited like i remember one time i went to this turtle guy and um and he had these waterland he just had the best system for like i mean he had, it was an effortless system and so he had like mm-hmm. he probably had i'm gonna guess 20 waterlands all plumbed all in a row and all he had to do was turn valves. He would go open these valves that all flood out. And he had every single one of them plumbed above with the water. And all he did was turn the water on and they all filled up. And he could literally do water changes on his phone. You know, 20 things. Yeah. And just that easy. And, that, and so when you're dealing with any aquatic animal, and this is the difference, I think, we like, when we like have our Komodos or our monitors like that, they're, they're really easy to maintain. There's not a lot of water. Water is where the work is. And so you have to like be real linear with your water. So we have everything very much like kind of like that turtle guy had. We have everything on drains and, and then we have it where it's automated. You just like a switch and they refill automatically and stuff like that. So then you just have to watch the clock and make sure you don't overflow things. And now our indoor pools right. are really big. I mean, they're like 10,000 gallons and stuff like that. And they flank on each side of the buildings. And, but we just basically just drain them out and, and, you know, refill them. And then about once every, three to four months or so we go in and we shop back them out and make sure there's no, you know, build up or anything on the bottom of them, make sure everything's really clean and just kind of, you know, it really works very automated. And then once they go outdoors, 
that's where the real beauty comes in because nature takes over for the most part. Like some of our pools are an acre big. Right. And so they just so much, wow. it, yeah, so you don't have to do anything. I mean, when they're naturally occurring, there's perch in them and bass and catfish and everything else. I mean, so they're just, they're just taking care of themselves out there for the most part, you know, so. And that, that helps a lot. That's amazing. Yeah, when they're young, though, that's when they're the most labor intensive because you just have to have, you know, you're just, you're just draining and refilling. And we do it about every two days, mm-hmm. you know, with the young animals. Because we use a lot of Missouri pellets as a dietary item. And Missouri is a great diet. It just fouls the water really bad, you know, and really fast. Yeah. So, so about every two days, we drain them out and refill them, drain them out and refill them, drain them out and refill them, you know. So that's how it goes. Yeah. Uh, Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a wholly different thing when it's like you have a, you have the, the thing that uh, all the bioactive you know, keepers are striving for when you've actually got an acre size pond for yeah, them. Yeah, it is. That's exactly, yeah, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's doing all the work. work. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. really that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's very cool. Amazing. Cool. Well, I mean, another thing you spoke about in um in your book is just kind of how you view uh, crocodilians as kind of like the perfect ambassadors for the natural world. I'm curious if you could speak a little bit why why they fulfill that role for you and what's so special about them? What sets them apart? You know, that's a great question. That's kind of a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, they they are... I'll I just give you an example. There, there's very few places you can go to where you can set up a business and have people come just because that animal is there. And uh, like if you go to a zoo, like I would, there's some iconic animals you can do this with, but the crocodile, like there are actual crocodile parks that people, you know, around the country, there's crocodile yeah. parks. It's just one of those animals that, for whatever reason, like like I said, it resonates through cultures in a lot of variety of ways. People just they have, there's an awe people have for them enough that they will come and they want to see them. I mean, it's it's really it's really that simple. I mean. And when they have that desire to come see that type of animal, you can slip in a whole lot of conservation talk. And that, and that is what mm. we do. I mean, we spend, we, we, we don't ever, there are some places you'll go and they want you to really, they want you to think, oh, it's so scary. Look how scary it is. You know, da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. we are the exact opposite of that. We, we want to make sure, you know, their role here, how awesome they are, you know, and we want you to leave knowing how incredible, you know, they are as a species and, uh, and that's kind of our, our goal. And you can do that because people already, for a variety of reasons, have a natural affinity to them. You know, they're, they're just one of those animals. Like, if you go have a park and you have, like, elephants, people probably come see your elephants. You know, I mean, they'll come and do that. And there's lions. People will come and see lions. The crocodiles are right there with them. I mean, you can literally just have a park oh, yeah. based on crocodiles. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. But it's true. I mean, yeah. and, not, and there's not a whole lot of animals you actually can do that with where people will come in mass to see you know, that kind of thing over and over and over again. I mean, it's just, there's just not a lot of stuff like that. Just, they are literally, you know, birds are really living dinosaurs, but for most people, they're the crocodile and the alligator are what people think of in that, in that vein. Right. And so it's, it's just kind of, I mean, there's really no easy answer to that. It's a great question, but it's just something people like about them. You know, they just, I don't know whether it's a, it's a fear or an awe or just, there's a lot of wonderment with them and, there's there's hardly anything I like better than like when a kid out here and our park is built specifically so you can get as close to them as you can safely. And we try to design some access points where you're looking down on them sometimes. Sometimes you're looking at them sideways. 
you know, it's, it's just a really kind of a, a dive into crocodile biology. And, but it's really mm-hmm. when a crocodile comes up and their jaws open up and a kid's standing like right there in front of them, it's just to watch their face go, you know, it's just, it's just yeah. really, it's a great moment, you know, it really is. And it happens a lot. It's, just, it's really cool to hear when the croc jumps at the ear, I'm like, what? you know, and, uh, yeah. But we've been you, but we've had a lot of people since we've been open for a while now. They come back and they say, "Man, I, they said I really I learned a lot here." We they bring their kid back, and so you know, on some fundamental level, I think you know you make a little bit of a difference with how people perceive them, you know. And I think that helps wild. Oh, yeah. I know, I know. Just in my time in our particular area down here, um, there has been a lot of. Uh, People come and say, oh, we're not going to kill this snake or we're not going to kill the turtle. Or, hey, like I had people today, my construction guy said, hey, we picked up nine turtles this week, you know, off the road. And oh, uh, yeah. yeah, it's just little stuff like that, you know, that you're probably subtly making a difference for, for animals out there that, you know, you wouldn't really generally know, you know. So it's, it's, I think they they kind of like are the engine that pulls a lot of conservation for a lot of other reptiles, you know, in the wild. So that's kind of that's my thought with them anyway. Seems to be, seems to yeah, be that- that totally makes sense. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I kind of work in ecological literacy, education stuff, you know, and in my life day to day. And, um, you know, we're always talking about like how it's difficult to get people to care about stuff like salamanders and snakes and lizards and stuff like that. And, you know, but it's, it's a lot easier when you have charismatic megafauna and I never really thought about it, but it's like, crocodilians are absolutely charismatic megafauna you know they're they're big and impressive they fit that bill and in that way they're kind of they're kind of unique among among reptiles in that way you know yeah i would think the the only thing family of herpetofauna yeah and i would think the only things that you could really compare to that type of animal and i I think they stand alone in a lot of ways but i think like yeah i think a giant like an aldarba tortoise or a galapagos tortoise is also right. kind of like an impactful animal i think like a, a king cobra is like that i think a komodo right. dragon certainly yeah. isn't it but you know here's what's interesting like i said we have komodos and um and we don't really fully put them on display you know that stuff people like them but i will tell you not like they like crocodiles i mean they'll walk by the komodo and say, oh hey cool it's a komodo dragon and you know i, th- I thought we brought the komodo we go, oh hey, but um it's more there are people that are interested in them, but I will tell you, there's a large swath of humanity out there that if you had a water monitor, they would think that's a part of dragon. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or, totally. or even a savannah monitor, yeah. you know, to that degree. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's just, um, there's this, that's why the crocodile tends, it stands alone in a lot of, in, a, in that kind of thing and that with the alligator. But, you know, there's, there's some other animals that I, I would view as iconic animals also, but. They just don't like friend. When we do our talk, we 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 always say the crocodile are last, but we talk about all the other animals. We take snakes and lizards and all that stuff, and and everybody yeah. likes them. But it's just they come to see the crocodile. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, large apex predators just they occupy kind of rarefied air in the human imagination, you know. And like, like you like you spoke about, you know, like kind of the cultural significance. It's like I think about like. It's the same thing with animals like tigers, you know, and lions and, and bears, you know, these are like these, these animals that can eat you. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, probably, that's probably a big part of it. It probably is. You know, and yeah, you, they demand respect and. Um, like sharks, you know, sharks have a whole week. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's kind 100%. of the same thing. 
Yeah, you know, they have Shark Week. I mean, they have Shark Week for a reason because everybody's, you know, they want to see these sharks eat things. I mean, it's just part of the deal, you know. So, yep. Yeah. Same, same philosophy. Same philosophy. Totally. So, have you had much opportunity to kind of observe wild crocodilians? Have you done some, some traveling? And Yeah, we have actually, uh, we're actually building a facility in Belize. So, we've seen some wild crocodilians on there. Wow. Tons of wild alligators. Yeah, there's a cutest there in Moorland. I mean, there's tons of wild alligators here. So we've done a lot with those through the years. Um, but yeah. I'm not a field. I'm not a field researcher, you know. And it's uh, the way yeah. we keep them here. We're like I said, with a one acre pond and all that stuff. They're essentially they they believe they're wild when they're out here. So we see a lot of what right. you consider wild behaviors. But um, no, I would actually like to do more on some level, but. You know, my wife always says I'm more of a five-star croc guy, so there better be a good hotel beside there. Because I, I, I yeah, laying, <laughs> laying in the woods with the mosquitoes is probably not my deal anymore. But, uh, you know, when I, was yeah. younger, when I was younger, maybe, but uh, it's not really my thing right now, you know. So we're, we're more of a captain. Yeah. Deal, you know, so. that, that's fair. That's fair. I think I I've, like, only, I I've like only observed. I said, I do like it when we're in Belize and we do see the wild ones. It is, it is nice, you know, but honestly, I find it very similar to like how we see the American alligators here. I mean, it's not like a, it's not, a, I don't mind see it as a huge difference or anything, you know, but, uh, yeah. but the facility in Belize is for conservation and education. So we basically do um, <clears throat> rehab animals there and animals that are nuisance and they, and they find their way to us there. So we do that with very the uh, cool. crocodile. Research Coalition, who are field researchers, and uh, Dr. Mrs. Paez, and so she she is a field researcher, and uh, that's her cup of tea down there, you know. So uh, that it, it works out as a partnership. So I get out, I drop into the facility, and she's out doing all the field work. So it works really well. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I also imagine that like field work for crocodilians, there would be a lot of tedium involved, you know, just like sitting there, like. Yeah, observing a crocodile basking. <laughs> well, you know what's really interesting about that is you said they actually do it mostly at night because crocodiles yeah. are really hard to find during the day. And so you, you end up doing eye shine at night and then you can see them a lot easier. Yeah. And so that's typically how it how it works itself out, is that right there? So it's that's and that that is fun to do. We've done that a bunch with her. And uh you go out there and you're on the boat and it's pitch black, you know, and you're looking for to see the the eye shine and everything like that, and uh, it's it's pretty fun. It is a lot, but it's not yeah. something I, I want to do like all the time or anything. So, yeah, yeah, right. I have a pretty fun fun memory of of being. Uh, I think I was fifteen in Costa Rica, and um, oh yeah, I was I was down. In a, I was I was participating in like a sea turtle conservation project down there, and basically just doing hatchery duty, you know, on a beach. Yeah. And, um, but there was a, there was a resident spectacle that came in that lived in like a, like a pond, uh, culvert underneath the road, right in the middle of the village, you know, and my whole last night that I was there in Costa Rica, I stayed up the whole night, you know, until sunrise catching, catching reptiles. But a lot of that night was, was me in this little pond trying to catch this, this little caiman, <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, and just for it. There, yeah. Yeah, you know, just waiting for the eye shine, because because yeah. as soon as you know, I'm in this this brown water, and and this thing had me figured out. It had no <laughs> trouble evading me, but uh, I was persistent. You know, I spent probably six hours in this murky water with this caiman trying to catch it. 
Yeah, that's six hours long. Yeah. Hour. Yeah, I'm on done an hour, and then you never. <laughs> I've been in the water. And one of the scariest things ever happened to me was I was out checking um, water temperatures one night, and, uh, and I don't know why I was doing this at the time, but I mean, we had a a thermometer, and we this is before everybody used electronic stuff. So I had like a literally a thermometer position in this pond, and I just had to go out and check it every so often. And it had probably probably eleven and a half foot male now crying, and two females in there. They were probably eight to ten, give or take. And so I'm out there at the bank. It's like 10, 11 o'clock at night or something like that. Man, I yeah. slipped right off that bank. And I slide oh. like like leg first down like this into the water. And so I'm like laying in the water. And that male is probably, he's he heard it. He's probably four foot, maybe, maybe less than that, looking at me like eye level like this. And I'm looking at him and he's looking at me. I'm thinking, oh, this is it. <laughs> but it, because the water was cool, he didn't care. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I scrambled out of that water as fast. You, I mean, I, I don't even know how fast I was. Oh, yeah. I would have videotaped it. It would have been super funny because I was moving so quick to get out of there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but he, he didn't do a thing. You know, that's what I was saying. And now crocodiles, you know, there are people to swim with them in, in the wintertime over there. You know, they actually, there's, oh, there's yeah. some videos out of people in cold water. Just, and that's just how to be what it was. But man, I, I guarantee I slid underneath him because I'm six foot tall and and he, where I was at from his head, I mean, he, he could have easily lunged forward. And, and that was just one of those things. That was a really dumb thing I did then. That was a dumb thing. I was just dumb. <laughs> I wasn't wearing the right shoes. It was just dumb. It's 10, 11 o'clock at night. You're going out to check the temperature. You're going, okay, no, I didn't really want to put my boots and all this stuff on to go. I'm just going to run out and do it really quick. And that, that was my first mistake was that right there, you know. So you've done something. Yeah. It's just little things like that, you know. It's like yeah, you look back you know, on it, get little bits of complacency. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's funny. Yeah. I have a whole staff of people, and you know, there's like a 12, 13 people on the staff, and we we make sure everybody has to buddy up when you do any of this stuff. You know, yeah, stuff. you just learn, you know. But when you're first doing it on your own, and you you don't man, you're lucky you survive. <laughs> you still have all your digits, right? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, yeah, I did. But you know what's funny? I I, I did have a bike probably it's probably a decade ago now, and uh, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more. And it was probably the worst bite I ever took. It's probably from like a four foot now. And we were moving some that Ooh. day. Like you just and we we were moving like ten of them, maybe maybe seven, eight, nine, ten, something like that. And it was literally the last one of the day. And we use a head restraint and we move them over so they can't mm-hmm. turn around. And with the head restraint on this last one popped off. And I had him by the oh. tail still. So what I should have done, and again, this is another dumb thing. Um, what I should have done, I would have told any of my staff, just put him down and start over. Just put him down and start over. Mm-hmm. It'll, take, it'll take one second, you know. You put him down and then yeah. you just reposition it and you go. And you, then you move him, you're done. Well, I had him by the tail. I already had him up. I said, okay, I'm just going to pull him and move him over here. This is like a four-foot animal. It's not big. And uh, when I did that, is I didn't lift him quite far enough, and his feet got a little bit of a purchase right on the edge of this enclosure, this thing. Uh, and just enough that he could turn around. And when he turned around, he went, boom, right here on my hand. And I was really lucky because he just gave me a defensive bite. He didn't roll or anything. But what oh, he yeah, did, yeah. he hit right there, and he tore all my tendons. So it took four surgeries to put them oh, all back together. But um, Man. Yeah, and it was just dumb. I mean, and that's why I always tell people, like, 
you know, I talked a lot. It's like almost like when you're talking to these venomous guys are doing all the free handling and all that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I don't know what anybody's opinions on that. And I'm not going to step into those waters. But when I tell people, like, they always sit there and say, it's not going to, you know, I'm going to be real careful. And not going to, well, I'm going to tell you, we're as careful as you can be. We got staff out here. We, everybody, you know, we have rules we follow, all that kind of stuff. And, it's just they're so they're just they're predators and they're quick, you know. I mean, it, yeah. and you you cannot take them for granted even one day, you know, even one minute. Like I yeah. did, you know? I mean, you just can't. I mean, if you 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 get it, and uh, and that's I think the biggest takeaway from from big powerful crocodilians. I think that everybody really needs to be aware of because if you get bit by a venomous snake, you have a real opportunity to survive. There's anti-venoms, you know, all this kind of stuff. You're you're most likely going to be just fine. Yeah. You're, you're probably going to have some hard times. You may end up getting some bad things happening in grafting, and well, depending on what the species is. But I'm going to tell yeah. you, if a, big, if a big Nile crocodile or a big saltwater crocodile, or you pick it, that is a. It's more than. It, I mean, you're talking the best thing they probably have to do is your arm will come off if you grab your arm. I mean, that's probably yeah. your best case scenario. I mean, it's it just it's a totally different life changing experience to deal with them, you know. And so, yeah, they, they need and they, people just need to know that if you're going to get one, and it's it's they're really powerful animals, you know. So I mean, like we pour big guys in, it takes seven people to pull them in, you know, seven. Yeah, <laughs> you have multiple ropes on the uh, sometimes seven. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a lot, man. <laughs> one person doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> oh, man, I you know we were pulling one today. The one that's going to move to the Bronx. There's three of us pulling on him, and he's he was a ten foot. He's a ten foot seven year old animal. He's not even he's not even old. You know, he's just yeah, probably about a four hundred pound animal. But um, and he was helping us. He was pushing his feet along and everything. <laughs> you know, he'd be a good guy. He's very relaxed. He's used to it because he's been born out here. But uh, you know, it's little stuff like that. People just, you know, they don't really think about it all that kind of. Thing. I know when I first started, I would never thought about it. So, yeah, totally. One of the things that I've been thinking about that's kind of one of those things that I think a lot of people wouldn't think about, you know, initially with crocodilians is just how long they can live. You know, and I know that there are some that, like, you know, are close to a hundred years old out there. I've heard. Um, well, we have sixty-something-year-old cubic crocodiles right now, so yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's the thing, you know. That's that's an, that is a uh, another thing that is um, a very big, you know. And and I and I th- I think about this quite often, even still, is that these animals um, they're going to be here a long time, you know. And if, yeah. if everything goes right, I mean, so like the animals in my incubator right now, like well, I'm fifty years old, so. They're like, if I, if I live to 100, they're still there. You know, I mean, they're yeah. still very here. And so, um, and, they, and, they, and the thing is, when you get these guys, and, they, and we have a staff. So, I mean, so it's different here now because we're, we're, we're in a professional institution. But um, if you're doing this individually, as you get older, that animal is not getting weaker. You know, it, it's just getting yeah. more powerful and more stronger. So, like, what you have at 20, and you get 30, like I'm when I'm at 50, I still go out there with them. Like I got four crocs myself the other night. These crocs are gonna be moving, but um it's just you know, it's just different. I mean, as you get older, they mm-hmm. the bigger they get. You you need to know that you're gonna need assistance and you need to have people that are willing to help you with these. And you know, if you're dealing with a speculative camera, even there, it's an animal that on occasion is gonna challenge you. I mean, it's a, it's still a strong animal, but like a more a lot of people have more lace crocodiles that are readily available. Man, you should see what a big one. Though. We have a big one in Belize right now. That's a big animal. 
You know, I just think yeah. people sometimes is like, oh, it's gonna get eight foot, or yeah, you're seeing an eight foot adult. I mean, it's a big yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Only eight feet. <laughs> Only eight feet, you know? You know, mm-hmm. and heavy, but um, and then as you get older, I mean that's you know, that's why appropriate training is really important because you can really mitigate against mm-hmm. a lot of that if you have good, you know, good training for the animal and everything. So but mm-hmm. when you're 80 and he's 50, he's still going to be a load, man. I'm telling you, you better have a good support staff around you. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, do you do you kind of look at crocodile encounter as something of like kind of like a living legacy for you? It's like gonna it's gonna outlive you. Do you think your your kids are gonna inherit it? What do well, you, my what kids, do you think about my all kids that? like it. I mean, I, I want them. I don't want them to feel any obligation to having to do it because it's been my passion. If they don't have the same, I mean, that's perfectly fine. Right. It will for sure outlive me um, just because of where we are in the community. I mean, how we've become mm-hmm. such a big part of it, it. It's going to be here for a long time. And I think probably if I had to venture, I guess, just the, just the way that we've developed, because, you know, we do other things too. I mean, we do antelope and all the tortoises and all this stuff. And um, we're like, we're like one of the, we might, we're the only non-AZA facility that has a pair of Komodo dragons. Um, you wow. know, so I, yeah. I think down the line, what will happen ultimately is we will probably end up at some point being an AZA facility. Mm-hmm. I personally do not have any real rush to do this. And I've been told that it's no real matter of import for us to do it. I just think that because that's basically all how we function now. And that's all our partners are that like that now. Um, but I think if I had to guess, you know, 20 years in the future or something like that, that might be, you know, how it's a yeah. lot. If, if there's any benefit to it, but we'll, we'll function like that any, like we do now. You know? So it, it's hard, it's hard to say, but yeah, I, I don't think it, I don't want to use the learned legacy or anything like that, but I think it's something that'll, you know, I'll, I mean, it, it's probably, I may step away from it even in, within a decade. Um mm-hmm. In the cro- I'll always want to keep the crocodile, but the day to day operations of the office and everything, I'm putting somebody in here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like I, I really like being with the animals. It's fun. I like we yeah. the in the afternoon. I love the evenings with the crocs. So there's nobody out here. You know, it's yeah. just I love it that when the people are here in the mornings and all that. That's really great. I've met a lot of great people, but the evenings with the animals. That's that's really what it's about for me. You know, it's it's pretty fantastic and. Uh, and I, and, you know, and I have some of my favorite animals are, of all time are crocodiles. Like my, you know, on our shirts, we have this crocodile. His name was Ajax. And uh, I raised him from a baby and he was just, he was always a feisty little dude. He just, you know, I raised a lot of them and he, this dude just had a crazy personality. He was just a beautiful animal. And, um, but he was just, his name was Ajax, God of War, because he just literally was just yeah. nuts. He was just crazy nuts. And yeah. eventually, yeah, he just calmed down enough that, but he was so spoiled, like he would only eat like certain things. If he brought chicken and he didn't want chicken that day, he'd hold out for beef. And he was just, he was just so he, so we'd have to go to the store, buy a beef brisket, you know, and, and give him whole <laughs> beef brisket because that, that's what he wanted. And he would eat, you know, so he was just such a spoiled animal. And we lost him a couple of years ago. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie, man, that, that hit me harder than any animal I have ever lost in my life. Yeah. I mean, dog, cat anything i i never cried like i did when that crocodile died. yeah you know because that's that's the beauty of having a crocodile is you will have them for a long time man you know when you get a dog mm-hmm. you get about a decade you may get 
12, 13 years, you know, if you're lucky, maybe 15, if you're really lucky. And a crocodile, you can you can have a crocodile for 50 or 60 years. And that crocodile is wow. going to know you. That crocodile, like he would come and he would eat for me and very few other people. If he saw me, he would just, he's he immediately was there. I mean, it's, it's just mm-hmm. something that is, and, and you're going to have it your whole life. You know, so I mean, it's just, it's a unique experience in the reptile world. And, uh, and I hope people, if they, if they decide to get one, that they, they recognize that and that it is, it is a deeply, I mean, you can get really deeply attached to them. So right now, my favorite crocodile is his son. Cause he had, a, he had, oh, a, cool. yeah. And so I raised his son and so his son's out there and he, he's a great guy. And it's just, so he's, he's my, he's my personal croc and he's just fantastic animal, you know? So I love it. Yeah. Is it, these are Niles. These are Niles. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah, so it's just, that that's why, so cool, yeah, I just, uh, but yeah, keeping them like that is just, it's just a long, it's just a lifetime commitment, but it's worth it, man. It's worth every freaking day of it. It is. So love it <laughs> amazing well yeah kind of on that vein i'm mean, curious like what like are you feel like there are like specific lessons that that the crocodiles have taught you i mean i'm sure there's a lot that they've taught you over the years but is there, is there anything that kind of stands out to you well i always tell people i've bred more crocodiles than everybody but i've killed more crocodiles than everybody too and um you know each time it's happened you know you learn you learn something and yeah. You know, you, you really just learn the what the animals can and cannot do. I mean, there are limits um, and your limits as well, because you, you really learn to like, you know, this is something that we're going to be successful. Like we used to be when I was younger, we have what we call croc watch because if it was a cold night. I mean, I would go out every two hours. I set my alarm. I get up at like 11. Then I get up at one. Then I get up at three. Then I get up at five just to make sure these crocodiles are not dig wallows. Like, OK, they used to do these. They like to sit in wallows. But they sit in a wallow, and then at night you have a cold front comes in and drops down to 40 degrees or colder. Crocodile yeah. can't move. So he's sitting there in the water. He's just like icing around him, but his legs, you know, so we used to have, and, but he could be 10 feet away from warm, heated water, you know, but he wow. just sits in his, yeah. yeah. So, so we have to go out and, and we've made a lot of adjustments in the years. So we don't have to worry about that at all anymore. But, um, mm-hmm. But just little things like that, you know, that you just learned it, that the crocodiles, like what they can and they cannot do, not to make assumptions based on what you think they can, they're doing, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, and you learn by making a lot of mistakes with them. And I mean, so, I mean, it's just, that's, that's exactly what has happened, you know, through the years. I mean, you know, if you make a mistake and you can lose an animal and, uh, and nobody ever likes to lose an animal. I mean, it's, it's a part of, it's a part of the game. And, um, yeah. But, I mean, you, and you get better and better every time you do. I mean, and that's part of the, that seems to me like the, what they call that, a Faustian bargain or whatever how that would be. You know, you, you learn yeah, through, exactly. through loss or something along those lines. And so, yeah, yeah. There's, there's been quite a bit of that, you know, through the years that it's, it's really been minimized, you know, and, and we, we really, we've, we've kind of like, you know, walked the walk with it. So there was no, there was nobody doing mass outdoor exotic crocodilians. You know, outside there was like there was very little to learn from. There were there was something now uh, Florida. They were you know, they, but they were relatively few in number. I mean, to do what we're doing is it's really not been done. You know, with like some of these species mm-hmm. before. So it's it's been a real serious learning curve. When I and we're still learning. I mean, because every new species has got you can't you can't assume the parameters. 
like France, the spectacle came in are terrible in the winter, just terrible. I mean, a good stiff breeze. Mm-hmm. I mean, it will just they'll just drop. They just have no t- their yeah. body, they don't have enough body mass. They just do. Yeah, you know, the Nile right. crocodile is very tolerant. Chinese alligators, American alligators, you can't kill them. They go down below zero, and it does not matter. I mean, they'll be fine. Yeah. Um, let's see. Saltwater crocodiles are weak, very weak animal. You know, I mean, for all their power and all their size, it is a astoundingly easy animal to kill. Um, Nile crocodiles are about a million times tougher than them. Just, uh, just, a, just a wow. million. Wow, times. interesting. Yeah, I know you wouldn't think it, but I mean the. The Saudis just don't do cool weather well at all. You know, I mean, not at all. Um, same with the cutest. Uh, Tomistima, we're still learning. I mean, uh, we don't really don't know. We're going to be super careful with them because they, what we found is like, say, an Orinoco crocodile, as an example. Uh, we have a big group of them. They actually, and I, and I believe this is because they do not have any, uh, they don't ever see any cool temperatures at all where they're from mm-hmm. for the most part at Columbia down there. So here, what's really interesting is like the Nile crocodiles will shut off. The American alligators will shut off when the winter start when not the winter, but the cool fronts start coming in. All these crocodilians that have cool temperatures in their native range will shut off and stop eating because they're afraid right. of getting caught in the cold front. Out the Ornoga crocodile, it can be cool and those things are still eating. They just go, interesting. go, go. We have to stop them ourselves. Because they don't yeah. seem to recognize that the cool was going to be there for a while. You know, they just don't seem to have that that built-in instinct for it. And so that they just it's crazy. They'll keep eating and other animals are shutting off all over the place. It's really kind of an interesting thing. So that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, yeah. of course it makes perfect sense when you think about them, you know, biologically, but it's that's just really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's it blew us away when it first time because we go out here on like doing our tours. I say who ate today? And I said, Oh, they weren't eggers there. That's the door and eggers there, but nobody else ate because it was where the cold front was there. You know, yeah. so they also have great body mass, so that also probably allows them to retain temperature a little bit longer. Uh, but you know, they, they're the same size. Some of our big mouths and mouths are doing it too. Same with our, we have some huge alligators. I mean, they they shut off too. So yeah, it's just really interesting. You know, they get the parameters. Like I find dwarf came and do really well in the cold. They're they're astounding. You know, interesting. So they, huh. they come from cool mountain streams and. uh Man, I remember one night it was 32 degrees out here, and we had a, I was probably running a mild bit of heat water on them, but it wasn't much. And those suckers are running around wanting to eat all the time. I couldn't even believe it. I just could not believe it. It was like, yeah, 32 degrees. <laughs> yeah. So there's yeah, a lot. I mean, I guess it makes sense, but it's not what I would have thought of, you know? Yeah, it's that's what I'm saying. You just can't, they, they really teach you a lot. And so we've always been open to learning from them, you know, and, I, and we listen to what the animals are trying to tell us. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's not what you think that, you know, should be happening. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing. And then you're trying to figure out, because like when we go to breed them, we always sit there and say, well, people are like, we did it like the Chinese alligators. We bred them for the first time, like a couple decades. And people say, well, what you do? I said, we didn't really do anything. You know, it's just, we just kind of try to remove hindrances to them doing what they're going to do. Because they, they want to reproduce, you know, it's not like, you know, they don't want yeah. to. So, yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. That seems like, yeah, that's, I feel like that, that applies, you know, very broadly within, you know, animal husbandry and reptile husbandry of just like, a lot of it is about like getting our preconceptions out of the way to let the animals do what they're supposed to do. And, you know, and, and also having a mind that's open enough to, to um, interpret what the animals are telling you, because 
Yeah. You know, sometimes it's like what you know about something or what you think you know about something can actually get in the way of what the animal is actually trying to tell you. Yeah, very much so. And too, you know, a lot of different species. So we just, we kind of let them kind of teach us. Like even crocodiles do very good in the cold too. They do really, really good, you know, so. Wow. Yeah, they're tough. That's a tough animal though. They're really, really tough. So, but. Are they as, are they as feisty as their reputation? Every bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know my staff they're probably my the favorite ones out i don't know why cuban crocodiles are everybody's favorite but if you're a croc person they are probably i would say if you asked 100 croc people what their favorite croc was they'll probably take cuban 75 percent of the time you know they just yeah. they're, and there is a lot to like about them i mean they that's a pretty bright oh, yeah they, they move really well there and they jump and they're not real real big so i mean you there but i'll tell you that's a dangerous animal right there. They are really, really dangerous. So, but um, ours have done well. We've, we've, we've done really well with them. We've, we've never had any real issues with them. And uh, they're, they're, they're pretty special in a lot of ways. So not as good as now crocodiles, but, <laughs> but they are cool. We've got, we've got it firmly established that Nile crocodiles are the superior crocodile. They are the superior crocodile. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, for sure. <laughs> at least for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually that, that just reminded me. I think um, one of, we had Philippe de Vaugely, you know, um, uh, he's he's written a lot. You know, uh, been an instrumental person within herpetoculture, and he um, he was speaking to saying that the the ancient Egyptians were the first herpetoculturists with working with Nile crocodiles. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's right. an assertion that he made. Yeah. And you know what's really so interesting cool. about that is uh, there are two species of Nile crocodiles, and that you may oh, know. Yeah, and so for a long time, and, it, and this is a herpetoculture thing. Herpetoculture would always say that this one group was different, and they called them the West mm-hmm. African Nile crocodile, and then they would have the East African Nile crocodile. And for many years, this is what we call them. We have the West African Nile crocodile. This is the East African crocodile. You can see the differences. I mean, if you look at them, I mean they're subtle, but if you look at them, you, you'll be able to tell. And um, so it turns out that, in fact, the herpetoculturists were right. And they, yeah. when they did the DNA on them, that one, the West African was the, it became Crocodilus suchus. And then mm-hmm. the other one is Crocodilus niloticus. Well, what's really interesting is that the niloticus is actually closely related to the acutus and the rhombifer and all these American crocodiles than the suchus, which is a totally different animal. And the suchus is the one that the Egyptians, they considered them very calm crocodiles. They buried them, they buried some of them with the, the pharaohs and such like that. And that is the one that they yeah. yeah. Kind of a crazy deal. Wow, right? that is really cool. I didn't yeah, realize that there were two species. And what's really yeah. interesting is we bred suchus before we bred Niloticus. Well before before they even split, we just did okay, we did uh you know, West African Niles first. So that's what we did. And, and that crocodile that I told you that I slid under, that was a such as a calmer version, you know, so if it was yeah. a Niloticus, I might not be having this talk to you right now. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and uh, so we have both here now. We have a small group of such as here now, and then we have our big group of Niloticus. But um, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting thing. They uncovered with the DNA when they did the DNA study on the animal. So. Yeah, isn't and isn't it also true that like in terms of like the phylogeny, the DNA that like all of the the New World's crocodilians are kind of descended from 
from some species that kind of rafted across. Is, yeah, that, that's, the, of, that's not, they came from Nilotocus. Yeah, apparently that's like yeah. other species essentially. Yeah, so pretty cool. Incredible. Yeah, and then they that's started diverging. Like, like for a long time, they didn't know that the Orinoco was separated from, uh, was different than acutus, you know, so. Yeah. Um, they, I believe they were lumped together there for a while, but they're, they're very different. So they corrected that. And, yeah. And they're still making adjustments to, um, a lot of this, and, that, and this is far from my expertise. I like I know there's multiple species of dwarf crocodiles now, they, and there's multiple species of New Guinea crocodile, and uh, Cataphractus, I believe, has been split also. And so they're, they're just all these different, you know, can, and I think they're still breaking some of them down. So there's there's just changes right. all over it. So every time, a little bit, every DNA gives you a little bit more information. So yeah, that stuff is fascinating to me. Very cool. Yeah, well, right. um, I mean, we've, we're going up close to an hour and a half now, um, and I want to be respectful of your time. But um, yeah, I'm curious. Like, what's what is a uh, what's next for you, Croc Encounter? I mean, you mentioned like further down the road, 20 years, maybe AZA accreditation process. But is there anything that kind of stands out as what's what's next? Well, immediately over the next year or so, we're, we're hoping to reproduce these, these T-positive albino now crocodiles. And the Temistler yeah. are going to be a really big project here. They're going to be, like I said, we have three breeding pairs of those. So they will, they're, they're getting pretty big. We'll probably start trying to reproduce, I would say, two years from now for the first run. I think probably three years to be successful. But we'll probably put them for two. Um, and they're going to be, a pretty big part of what we have going forward because like we're the only people that have that many unrelated pairs and so we have a, they're going to get a lot of a lot of pull and work here and so i think for the immediate future that's that's probably doing. we're also expanding our turtle groups a lot you know in the last a little bit but rocket digging wise like i said we're going to shrink their shrink the number of species maintain larger groups of what we're doing and then we'll just kind of we're going to kind of go from there and we're trying to make a bigger push to do a little bit more stuff in situ. That's what led us to Belize and, um, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. Cause it's great that people can see them here and, and really enjoy them, but we want to continue to, to do conservation where they're actually at. So, yeah. um, and that's, that's always a little bit challenging, but also interesting. It's really, it's one of the most rewarding things to do too, you know? So. Totally. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah but the facility here grows as the animals do. So we're 26 acres right now. And, uh, we bought 75 more acres for, for growth and it just kind of, you know, we just kind of grow as, as the, as the animals do. And we just kind of go like that. So, but you know, like I said, cool. for the first time, we kind of have a couple year plan and we've always been kind of just going with the flow with it, you know, so we're kind of starting to, to do that. Like, and we have the Komodos here, so they're, they're going to be part of the deal too. So. Very cool. Cool. Well, um, you know, to close, we kind of, we have the, we have the same closing question for all of our guests. Um, so I'll go ahead and pitch that to you. And that's just, uh, why, why herpetoculture? And that can be interpreted like, you know, why, why do you do this? Why, why does it matter? Why do we do this? Um, yeah. Why herpetoculture for you? Well, I'll tell you, I think it matters a lot. And, um, I think that I can just tell you here in the Houston area alone, where we're at, when, when we first moved down here, you could go from where we're located into Houston and all you would pass is farmland, ranches, you know, I mean, and now 
you can't go from you leave here within five minutes subdivisions. And oh, so, yeah. From, yeah, from where we're at here all the way, you're talking probably 40 miles of subdivisions that never were here before. And it drives me crazy a little bit because, I'm, you know, I like to be out in the country a little bit and the country just starting to disappear. Yeah. And, you know, and you hear people say all the time, you know, well, I like to see the animal in the wild, but instead of a deli cup, well, I'm going to tell you right now, there's not a whole lot of wild for a lot of people to go see. And those deli cup stuff that you see, the, the habitats and the, and the beauty of some, some of these habitats have come a long way. Like I know that stuff, my son keeps some, you know, day geckos and, and they, they've got, they got Gila monsters and they, they got all kinds of stuff, you know, on their own. But, um, and I know what they, how they view the animal world from that type of experience. And they, and they live out here in like, you know, animal kingdom and they can walk outside mm-hmm. and see all your wildebeest and stuff like that. And, but for your, for your normal, but the impact of their own collection is really good. Uh, for a normal person though, who's living in these subdivisions and is is not going to get out and and see a lot of this stuff, I tell you what, man, there's hardly a better way to appreciate nature, you know. And not only that, mm. it teaches you a lot about the natural world and what these animals are required to have to actually survive where they are at. I mean, so if you can keep the animal alive in its little biome, you understand why that is important to have that somewhere else in the wild because if they don't have that in the wild, they're just gone. And and I think that is uh, very very important for Joe Blow and his sister to kind of know. You know, I just think that the yeah. more the people are like that. So for all these guys that, that think you're not making a difference, I think you are. I mean, you know, and there's some probably there's positive and negative to everything. You know, I mean, some animals are overproduced and all that. But I think as a net whole, I think I think it makes a difference on how people perceive the world, and I, I think that's a good thing. You know, so I think it's a really great thing, actually. So my life would be radically really different. well said. Yeah, my life would be radically different without it. And so, you know, I just think I think it's very important. I think everybody who's doing it should continue to, to keep put that. It, the, the hobby is kind of like, I don't know, how, how old are you? I didn't even ask you. I'm 32. Uh, so you're, you're young. And so, <laughs> so for me, I've been doing it. I remember when they first had the first Albano corn study. I remember when it first came out, I was like, oh, oh yeah. You know, like that, and and to see where it's come from that to now, I mean, it, this is fantastic for people, and and I think ultimately it's fantastic for the animals in the wild. So, I, I think it's a really good thing. Very well said. Uh, that's awesome. Well, um, where can folks find you? You know, if they want to, if they want to come come to Crocodile Encounter, have a Crocodile Encounter. Sure. Um, where is where it? Can they do it? Yeah, hey, yeah, we're we're just right south of Houston, and. uh our website's crocodileencounter.com. So, I mean, you're, you know, we welcome everybody out, and, you know, which is always a good time and we like to meet everybody and uh, it's just, it's just a good time. So, yeah, come on out. We're glad to see everybody. Awesome. Awesome. I want to give a quick shout out to, to, to Nate, Nate Truax for encouraging me to reach out to you as a guest. And um, so a great guy, really good out. guy. Yeah, yeah he really is. Fella, you know, so he's been down. He comes down all the time. He went to Crockfest with us this last time. He's he's just a really good guy. So he does some great uh, Star Wars uh, like sounds. You know, my kids love him when he does it. So oh, he does. Like, all right. But, uh, <laughs> I'll have to ask him about that next time we chat. Yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> he's a great guy. Yes. So. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm gonna hit the recording button here. Thanks again.